You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Well, today we're a- answering, um, you know, the like most basic Sunday school question, right? Mm-hmm. Who's Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus, JT? You have anything anything to add to this? You gotta listen to the episode. Ooh, teaser. Jen, does JT say anything good on the episode? (laughs) JT does. You kind of take it somewhere a little. I was almost like, ooh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to jump in. I hope you guys (laughs) enjoy the discussion. (laughs) So I got my daughter a new book. We went to the, we go to the bookstore like once a month mm-hmm. and I'll let her just like, Hey, pick out any book that you want. Um, and so we're going through the bookstore and there's like the children's section and there's like editor recommends or, uh, uh, the store reps rep recommend this book. And it was a book about Humpty Dumpty. And so the book, like it, not Humpty Dumpty, but a book about Humpty Dumpty. No, it's a book. Well, what? <laughs> you said it's a book about Humpty yes, Dumpty, almost it, as though it was a commentary. Okay, no, that is very good oh, clarification. Okay, okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a retelling of the Humpty okay, Dumpty okay, story. Okay. okay, in this story, Humpty Dumpty, to spoil the story, but it's a kid's book, Humpty Dumpty uh, falls. Uh-huh. All, they put him back together, but he's afraid of going back on the wall, but he loves to go up on the wall to watch the birds mm-hmm. that are flying up around him high above the city. Um, but eventually he mounts up enough courage and he goes to the top of the wall again, and when he gets to the top of the wall, he cracks, he breaks entirely because he was a bird the whole time. What? The egg was, what? yeah. So the, essentially, he was a like the the egg was not what we think of an egg like a yolk pouring out, but was it like a seat like it was like a hatchling? It was a bird, and so he gets to the top of the wall, and this time when he busts, he flies away as a bird. Is this an attempt to sanitize Humpty Dumpty's? Sad story. I don't think it is. I think it's a story about bravery and courage. <laughs> it feels like turning a tragedy into a, a hero story. Well, isn't that the gospel? <laughs> well, well, or hermeneutically speaking, it's adding a little paint around the edges of the canvas. It's There's no doubt about that. But it reminded me of this illustration that you used in the training program. I love using this illustration. So it's like two so, weeks away. So just get, can you... Can you well, I'm going to give it away. Yeah, you, want to, you want to get my magic away? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, by the time this. this airs, it will have already happened. <laughs> That's fine. It's true. So like one of the things we talk about in reading the Bible is that you're coming with all kinds of assumptions and lenses of, of how you think you should read the Bible. And this is, we use this illustration with the Humpty Dumpty story. So we'll have two, two students come up to a whiteboard with markers in their hands. And I just tell them, hey, all I need you to do is draw exactly what I say. Draw nothing other than what I say. A picture. And we'll tell the Humpty Dumpty story, you know, Humpty Dumpty, whatever. And they always draw it as an egg. And they always draw the king being there. And they, they draw all of these things that right now you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, that's what I would draw also. But the reality is none of that's in the actual text itself. Right. And so you have these things that you're importing. You're importing tons of meaning into things that, that aren't there. And so we're showing people it's important to read the Bible literally and literally mm-hmm. right. in terms of what's actually in the text. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it doesn't say that Humpty Dumpty was an egg. Yeah doesn't say that the king was there. Right, exactly. But you bring that with you. It doesn't say that the king's men put him together, but the king's horses did. Right. All the kings, mm-hmm. So, like, there's this there's this weird language that's there in the text right. that we just import other meaning to it. Yeah. It's because a, we saw one nursery book story one time. Yeah, that's this, how they interpreted it. It's hilarious because this is one of the 
most like what moments of this training <laughs> program, although it's relatively innocuous, mm, right? It's like a but people are totally flustered and flabbergasted by it. And I was thinking about it in relation to our episode today because when you see an episode episode titled "Who Is Jesus?" Mm-hmm. It can be really easy to be like, "Got this settled, nailed it, nailed it." Like this is this is the question I've got answered. It's very obvious. It's very easy. This is pretty basic elementary stuff, but. Oftentimes, like the story of Humpty Dumpty, we come to the story of Jesus and the question of who is Jesus with a lot of assumptions that might be hard to justify. It might be hard to validate when we actually really think through what does the Bible say Mm -hmm. and what has the church historically said about who Jesus is. And so we're going to talk through the Apostles' Creed today asking the question, who is Jesus? And so uh, we have been in the Apostles' Creed and we're going to journey through the Apostles' Creed over the course of this season of Knowing Faith because it's a really important kind of keystone document in the life of the church. It's been kind of a consensus document for what the church has historically believed. Uh, and so it's been a, been a place for the church to return and say, hey, at the end of the day, here are some basic nuts and bolts that we're affirming. And so we wanted to spend today asking the question, who is Jesus? And so, Jen, would you are you willing to read the creed just all the way sure. through? Um, and that way, uh, that way we can kind of get a refresh on what the creed says, and we'll come back and talk about Jesus. Okay, this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to focus in on asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So who is Jesus Christ? I really thought <laughs> I really thought that would be that was gonna that's I'll tell you guys that's the easiest one for the whole this time. Is it. Okay. This is no, the, Jesus. I was, I was putting the cookies on the bottom shelf to start, and uh, so and so I mean here we're, when when you think about the structure of the creed, this this becomes mm-hmm. the biggest portion. Like the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the of the twelve is centering on the person and work of Jesus. They why is that, by the way? Because it seems like if you were going to balance this neatly between the three members of the Trinity, this would be not okay. I'm not sure if this is a hot take. I'm also not sure if I'm right. But let me tell you what I think. I think it's because Trinitarianism is not meant to be equally balanced. Though the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. I think I would argue that Trinitarianism has embedded within it an intentional Christocentricity to it, or a Jesus-centeredness to it, that the Father is the invisible God. Mm-hmm. The Son is, and Jesus specifically, is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that God is making himself known through mm-hmm. the Son in these last days. And then, yes, Jesus says the Spirit is coming, but he says the point of the Spirit is to testify about me. And so you have this, certainly all fully God worthy of worship, adoration, praise, but in terms of who they are, the Father is pointing to the Son. The Son is pointing to the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is pointing to the Son. So you have this— Wait, say that more slowly. Okay. 
So like, here's how it works part. in my head. Mm-hmm. I, in my, I'm not sure if this is helpful. No, I think I, you're. I think, I think you're of right. like an almost like an infinity loop. Mm-hmm. And if think of it moving from left to right, is you have the father moving towards the son, and the mm-hmm. son is then kind of the centerpiece of what the father is doing, and the son sends the spirit. This is where the infinity loop continues to the right edge. But the point of the spirit is to point back to the son, and mm-hmm. the son then says, "I'm I'm 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 the image of the father. I do nothing except on his authority." Yep. And so I think what the apostles are picking up on is that as Trinitarians, uh, we are intentionally Christ-centered mm-hmm. because the Trinity is Christ-centered. Yeah, I think Paul actually gets at this kind of tension at the end of Philippians 2. Therefore, God, so it's, you know, you Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this Christocentric hymn, uh, and then at the end, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's right. So it's, you know, right, that there's this kind of, you give it to Jesus, all mm-hmm. praise, center, uh, centered worship, adoration, Jesus, and and Jesus gives that to the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So like, the Father's exalting Jesus. That's right. Jesus, the, you know, the Son is exalting the Father, right? The Spirit mm-hmm. is exalting the Son. The mm-hmm. So you have, and I'm not sure that I disagree because maybe in evangelicalism we have kind of embedded within us this like, fear to talk about the spirit or we don't want to honor and glorify and enjoy and fellowship with the spirit. But sometimes I think those critiques of evangelicalism can be over torqued a little bit. Like he is the, uh, what was that forgotten book? Memory yeah, of the Trinity. He's not forgotten. If you're, if you're giving glory to the son, you are a spirit filled person mm-hmm. because you can't, the Bible says you can't do that. And, and the, the spirit does not come to glorify himself or even not just, let's not talk about the spirit, let's talk about the father. The Father can't be, you cannot know the Father mm-hmm. except by worshiping His image, mm-hmm. which is the, the Son. Mm-hmm. And so I think what the Apostles' Creed is doing here, I mean, if you're going to make that critique of evangelicalism, you'd also have to make it of the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Because you have the Father given one sentence and the Spirit given one clause. Right. Yeah. But then the Son, the work of Jesus, is this massive kind of corpus of who he is, what he did, when he did it, and what he's going to come do again. It's just there's so much content because, like I said, I think Trinitarianism has a Christocentricity to it or a Jesus-centeredness to it. Can you talk about, too, I'm going to butcher it if I try to remember it, but it was the sending aspect of the Father sending the Son to fill in the blank, and then the Spirit is sent to those two sendings that happen. Mm -hmm. How do those relate to one another? Yeah, so there is, in Trinitarianism, uh, the terms that are used to talk about God in himself, mm-hmm. we use the term eternal, the Son is eternally begotten, that's mm-hmm. how Nicaea talks mm-hmm. about it, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. We say those things are true about God in himself before mm-hmm. he ever created, because that's how we see God acting in history, or mm-hmm. we call that, in, <coughs> pardon me, in the economy. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the the missions of God in history, you have the Father who is never sent, you have the Son who is sent, and then you have the Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son. And that's who they are. Yeah. Their sendings relate to their to their way of being. And then what they come and do relates to who they are. And so I think, again, the Apostles' Creed, I think, is actually picking up on some very nuanced and helpful, robust Trinitarian theology that centers upon the person and work of the Son. I think another reason, just historically, is that we know that uh, there's going to be and may have been already at this time fairly contentious disagreement emerging about oh. the nature of the sun. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So to like be right. really so specific. the emphasis here is because that was what is at stake at yeah. the time that the creed is being yeah, and, and it's written. fascinating. Yeah, well, 
you know, is I, that what you're saying? Yes, I don't know. I don't really know the timestamps here, uh, but I would say that certainly the biggest issue in the first four, 300, 400 years of the early church is who was Jesus? Who mm-hmm. is Jesus? Mm-hmm. Was he fully God, fully man? So they're having to deal with some of those issues, mm-hmm. right? So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. So we're talking about Jesus Christ is God's son. Yep. The father's son. So we talked, we, uh, last night in the training program, we did Trinitarianism Mm -hmm. and it's my favorite lecture every year because, and we read Michael, if you've, if you're still unfamiliar with Trinitarianism, the the best resource I can recommend to you, this is not a Jesus juke, is the gospel of John. Uh, (laughs) Spend some time in John and like, I'm serious. Like if you just think about how John is intentionally using the person of the father, the person of the son, the person of the spirit, that's better than Augustine's Trinitarianism. It's better than Michael Reeves, but those are two other works. So you could read, we read Michael Reeves in the training program. And one of the things that, that is really a big aha moment for our students is this right here. Uh, he talks about how before God was creator, he was father and son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That God has always been in this filial or this father and son relationship that was pure love. Mm-hmm. Yes. There was never a time for, for, for God. Love isn't a feeling he has for the son. It's something that just exists because he is love. Yeah. And so you have the apostles creed starting with this point that the father and the son have always had this, this father son relationship right. before, before Genesis one, God was father. Yes. Before Genesis one, God was son. Yes. That's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And so, I mean, just maybe a quick pastoral implication of that is, and you, this is your topic on union with Christ, is that if you are in the Son, there's nothing that you can do to not experience the Father's love. Yes. He loves you with the love that he loves the Son with. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I love that. I believe in Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Mm, that's a good question because really Jesus and why Christ? Well, I, and these are just terms that we kind of lob around, you know, we don't really necessarily think about the significance of them. Many people do, you know, they just, they kind of pick whatever, whatever title fits the moment or pops into their head. But these are really specific mentions here. They're very purposeful. Um, Jesus being a reference to his humanity and then Christ being uh, another word for, it's the Greek word for Messiah. Right. So um, establishing that he is not just human, he is also Messiah, the one who was told would come. And then, of course, following up immediately with Lord in there. And you think about the earliest creeds before you have the Apostles' Creed, what people would say is Jesus Christ is the Lord. They right. wanted to get all, the, all three of those things in there, the Lordship, the Messiahship, yeah. and the humanity of Christ. Yeah, and, and, and the creed just puts that all together. Right. So it's like you've got son, so I believe in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. humanity, divinity, son, mm-hmm. doubling down. Doubling down on the, the divinity piece. Yeah, on the mm-hmm. divinity piece, and uh, probably to cutting against some alternative Christologies, like adoptionism, mm-hmm. that would have suggested that, right. that Jesus was God's adopted son, that mm-hmm. he was like a great, he would be a great king or be a great man, and because of that, he was God's chosen adopted son. Mm-hmm. But no, the son possesses a filial relationship to the father by virtue of who he is, mm-hmm. not by virtue of what he might be. Um, so I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting into this kind of cosmic that he is king, he rules and reigns mm-hmm. over all things. And in the communal nature of that. Yes. Like it's it's not my Lord. Yes, he our, is Lord. our Lord. Our Lord. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. good. That he is he is the one who reigns over the church. Right. And we are his citizens and people. And we sh- the, the relationship that we share is a relationship that we share of allegiance to our king. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that while we, uh, the Christian community, um, 
is distinct in that they acknowledge Christ as Lord. Christ is not Lord because they acknowledge him as Lord. He is Lord regardless of their acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's um, right. He's Lord over all a, things. And this is a this is an acknowledgement of submission. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a topic that we have explored a little bit on some other episodes, but this embedded idea of allegiance mm-hmm. in the New Testament and in the gospel, that when we make this confession, we're not making a doctrinal confession only. We're making a, a confession of allegiance, mm-hmm. probably primarily. We're not just saying things that are true about God. We're saying things that need to be true about our heart and our allegiance to a king. That We're saying, and if this is written kind of in a Greco-Roman period, but not even just Greco-Roman, like this is a, this is a, uh, this is a pledge mm-hmm. of allegiance mm-hmm. to a king yeah. that is saying, I'm no longer pledging allegiance to any other earthly powers and authorities because my allegiances have shifted from myself or from whatever it might be to the true Lord of yeah. the world, the one who reigns over the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been, I've been talking with a friend um, and uh, he's not a follower of Jesus, but we have a great time hanging out. And um, so just as we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus, I've, I've asked him recently, like, what do you feel like really holds you back? Because there's a lot of things that he kind of, you can see him agree with. And what he said was essentially like, well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And he's in control of everything. Mm-hmm. And he's the, like, he gets to kind of determine where you go and where you don't go. And you're like, I was like, that's true. It's true, but it was just, it, it was incredible to, it was, a, it was an incredible reminder for me that like, yes, this mm-hmm. is an all of life thing, mm-hmm. right? What is it? Um, uh, it's been said different ways. Like you think about Kuiper saying, there's not one square inch in all of creation mm-hmm. that Jesus doesn't look at and point to and say mm-hmm. mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I forget who said this, but that Jesus is Lord over everything mm-hmm. or he's Lord over nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I think I've mentioned this also before, but I'm working with Thomas on some catechism questions. Mm-hmm. And the very first question of the Westminster catechism, but also this new city catechism, the children's version we're using is what is your greatest hope in life and death? And the answer is we are not our own, but belong to God. That's mm-hmm. getting at this here. And I think the point you're making is that's either your greatest hope or your greatest fear. Yeah, absolutely. But it really does capture if you, if that doesn't, provoke some fear in you at some point, it means you probably also haven't put your greatest hope in it, that you are no longer yours, according to the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are Christ's. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're his. Yeah. And that the Christian comes to believe that is to be a good thing. A good thing. Not just the right thing. That's right. But, but the better thing. Flourishing. Yeah. And we, have, we haven't even hit the political mm-hmm. Well, I'm feeling I'm feeling a real tension in, between like repeating this statement every Sunday, say, in a service mm-hmm. um, versus the notion of... Um, what we typically might lead with is God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Yeah. Like I think another thing we're seeing here, it's not that God doesn't love you or doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life, but I would say that's a phrase we have chosen to make repetition of sometimes to the extent that what this is saying in the Apostles' Creed has fallen to the wayside. Because yes. again, this is the language of submission. Yeah. And this is saying not just God wants relationship with me, but there that relationship entails that Jesus Christ is Lord over me, yeah. that I am submitting to his rule. Well, that he's, and he's defining the good. Yeah. He, he defines the good and the bad and he, he, he shows where the boundary lines are. And I, it, I think about like when you have small children, you guys both have small children right now and how it's not enough to tell a child, Hey, you need to do this. You, you learn pretty quickly that if you don't require a verbal response from a child, 
I will obey. Or, you know, if you say, what did I tell you to do? The child should be able to repeat it back to you. That's when their will submits. It's not actually even when they go to do the thing that they're supposed to do. It's that they begin the submission of their will, that process with the articulation of, I will do what you said. And I think that's what, that's what this is here. It's saying, this is a verbal acknowledgement that I will um, subject my will to his will. Mm -hmm. And this or also, align my will with his will. That's yeah. right. This also, I think, wages war against not just the contemporary, but really since Genesis 3, the infatuation with the self. Mm-hmm. That this is not a confession of who God says we mm-hmm. are. We are confessing mm-hmm. who right. God is. Yeah. That the primary Christian confession isn't in our infatuation, isn't with God telling us all about ourselves, mm-hmm. but us repeating all that God has said about himself. Yes. That's mm-hmm. primarily what it means to be a Christian. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. The Lord component here, we can look at the God component or uh, or the virginal conception, and that for us can stand out as like, wow, that's the that's the real polarizing mm-hmm. thing here. Wow, a supernatural view of the world where this baby's <laughs> conceived by the Holy Spirit. But for many of those people who would have been reciting this, the most controversial thing they would have just said about Jesus is that he is mm-hmm. their Lord. Mm-hmm. Because it was subvers- it was politically and culturally subvers- mm-hmm. and much has been written about this that you know we we think of Lord as a as a theological title. Right. It was a political title being appropriated mm-hmm. for theological purposes, oh, man. particularly within the Roman Empire. Exactly. Yep. So to be saying something like this, Jesus Christ is God's Son and He is our Lord, as immediately put you into a group of saying there is a Lord greater than the Lord of these realms. Mm-hmm. I think there's a really there's a big misunderstanding. I mean, so I've taught similar ideas in the training program before. And this can be a really hard idea for students who've been kind of taught that my my religious affiliation doesn't actually impact my political affiliations. Yeah. That this is a spiritual reality, which might have like like moral and ethical implications for my politics, but it certainly doesn't have political implications for my politics. Right. And that's an idea that's foreign to the New Testament. Definitely. That you could argue that Jesus's greatest claim is a political one. True. They don't kill him for claiming just to be God. Right. They kill him for claiming to be king. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's why it says this is Jesus who claimed to be king of the Jew or right. king of the Jews. Like right. it's not saying he claimed to be Yahweh. Yeah. It's saying he is claiming lordship, kingship, not over just the Jews, but over everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But the but 
for us and a lot of modern sensibilities, maybe the most antiquated thing that's going to be said are the next two lines. Mm -hmm. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So what is the work of the Spirit in Christ's conception? Like, how does... How does that work? <laughs> I know Jen's going to go somewhere awesome with this. So before you get there, I think it's important. You're going to diagram something for it? No, no diagram. <laughs> but I, I think it's important uh, to, to be reminded that like the, of the biblical theology of this, uh, of all of biblical history has this pattern of birth narratives. Whether you're talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah, Moses' birth narrative, Hannah Mm -hmm. uh, and Samuel and even Israel's birth narrative coming out of the Exodus is kind of this picture of a nation being born. And so the fact that they're including this is really doing some, they're, they're, they're like tipping you off. Yeah. I think there's some biblical imagery that begins really at the beginning of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Born of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. What's the role of the spirit in Christ's conception? Well, um, I don't know that we, can nail down specifically how things transpired. And I don't think that any of the texts that deal with this are particularly interested in that. Um, We're interested in it because we want to science it all to death. Um, But they're, they're making theological statements rather than um, biological statements. I would say when you're reading the text, but if you go to Luke's account of the angel appearing to Mary Um, the angel says, tells her that she's going to um, conceive and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. And Mary says, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, she's not asking out of doubt. This is not the how will this be that we've seen other places, uh, specifically right before this story where where we're told about the the birth of John the Baptist. Um, But the angel answers her. This is verse 35 of chapter 1 of Luke. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you uh, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And that's really significant language because as has already been pointed out, we're dealing with a lot of birth narratives, a lot of creation narratives um, throughout the Bible, certainly, but um, in these these inaugural moments in the New Testament as well. And we just had in our earlier conversation in a previous episode about um, the gospel, uh, the gospel, the, the book of Acts, right. um, the story of the birth narrative of the church at Pentecost and where the Spirit hovers and then life is given and the church is born. And that's what we're seeing here is this same language pulling all the way back to Genesis where the Spirit hovers over the waters and then gives life. Um, at the command of God, uh, that that the Spirit is going to now overshadow, hover over Mary, and the inaugural event of the new creation will be the birth of Christ. Right. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And Boom. It, and it connects with what JT said, that these birth narratives that you see yep. pattern now, and that the Spirit is all throughout the story of Scripture. Giving do, life. Giving life. Giving life. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving life. And, you know, I was... In the most unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, to go back to an earlier argument we had, is a pretty good, uh, you know, you were saying, JT, that you don't think the Spirit is the same in the New Testament as the Old That's the not what I that's said. That's exactly what he said. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's The Spirit gives Testament. life, period. Mm-hmm. Old Testament, New Testament. He does. Spirit given the life. He does. There was one time in the training program where a student asked me, they're like, it was in Dallas, and they were like, yeah, but like, how did the spirit do this? And, and, and I was like, well, I, I don't know, but, mm-hmm. but it's just, there's, I can't give you a natural explanation for a supernatural thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we don't know how this happened in the same way that we don't know 
how God created Adam and Eve from nothing. Well, right. right. And I think that's, you know, again, this is a good, this is a good hermeneutical principle, a way of reading the Bible that we need to pay attention to, a tool that we need in our tool belt. And that is we don't, we are tempted to ask questions of the text that the text doesn't care about. And just as with the first creation account, the text just really doesn't care about giving you the how. Um, These texts that are talking about the new creation, they're not really that concerned about the how in terms of like, so what was this genetic makeup? You know, where did his DNA come from? They're not asking or answering those questions because they have more important questions in view. Yeah. I do think it's incredibly significant. And this is the the, the first time maybe outside of Jesus Christ, you could say that that was, that's being kind of putting the historical situatedness or the narrative uh, into the creed here. But born of the Virgin Mary is a, very, we talked about how the Apostles' Creed probably from a lot of the consensus creeds is the most narrative driven. Mm-hmm. And this is where you start to really see it, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You're getting the Son of God with born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You're now stepping into a, a moment in the history of redemption, mm-hmm. the incarnation, mm-hmm. right? And so, and, and it's only going to get more as we talk about what Jesus did in a later episode. You're going to see these names get put in, but Virgin Mary here, uh, this is really, it's tying what can sometimes be the abstract concept of Jesus Christ right, right? to an event. And right? to a, v- a very specific person. A, yes, a person, and a very specific yeah. person, which is, um, I think, a very valuable way that the creed helps shape our theological imagination of saying it can be very easy for people to talk about some of the realities, Mm -hmm. uh, theological realities of scripture, the truths of scripture, God and Jesus in particular, abstracted from the actual story of Jesus. Right. You know, you can talk about being Jesus-centered or being Christ-centered, it seems ad nauseum without actually having to talk about the real things that happened to Jesus. Yeah. It's almost, this isn't the categories you're talking about, but if you only focus on the first line of the creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and only focus on God's transcendence and not his imminence, Mm -hmm. and not just imminence of like, he's close, but like, he came to a womb. Yes. Mm -hmm. And was born of a virgin. Yeah. Incarnate and in place. Yes. Yes. Well, okay, how about this? Maybe this is heretical. You guys can tell me. I'm sure you will. But I think what we see is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, transcendent, right? Then um, if you go down, like say we catapulted down to, I believe in the Holy Spirit, um, imminent, right? And then in Christ, what we're seeing here in this part of the creed is a, a, a handing back and forth between tr- between transcendent and imminent, yeah. which is the dual nature of Christ. Yeah. Is that is that fair? Well, I think we would say that the whole God is simultaneously transcendent and imminent, but in terms of the flow of redemptive st- history, yes. Well, and also I think the structure of the creed yeah. is is that. Yes. Um, so I just I think I was noticing that for the first time yeah. because you bounce back and forth. You know, he's Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So you've got human, divine, human, yeah. divine, human, yep. divine, all yep. the way through here. Um, conceived by the Holy Spirit, divine, right. born of the Virgin Mary, human. That's good. Yeah, you're right. Um, suffered under Pontius Pilate, human, crucified, dead and buried, human, descended to hell. Uh-oh, we're getting back into divine territory <laughs> right. there, yeah. you know, so. Um, you are getting that dynamic mystery of yes, here. right. Of that he's uh, among us yes. but he's he's not of us yeah and, and mm-hmm. all at the same time yeah yeah um which is really incredible so let me just so to ask this simple question was the son of god born was god born would it be safe could you say can you say god was born <laughs> I'm not 
JD. What? I just want him to start. I want you to start. No, when you do your face like that, I get scared. <laughs> I don't feel reassured. I feel fear. Can you see that God was born? So this is a huge conversation. It's a huge conversation. Uh, and it was a big one for the early church. Right. So they use the term theokatos, which means that Mary was the God bearer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, I would affirm it. Yes, that Mary bore the Son of God. He was not born oh, insofar as... Catholic now, huh? Yeah, well, here's what's funny. I'm also a John Calvin fanboy, and Calvin thinks this oh. is insane. Yeah, he, does. <laughs> he, does. he goes bananas on yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, understand, I understand why he goes bananas, too. What we're not saying is that the Son of God came into existence, uh-huh. right. but that Mary bore him, He was in her womb. Him. Yes, yeah. that, he, that he was emplaced there. Yes. Calvin goes bananas against this because he has a whole other kind of theological system working called the extra Calvinisticum, which is the idea that though the son descended, he never really descended. He He's not hedged in by his body or hedged in by a womb. He's still in the heavens, right? Which I also affirm. Yeah. But yeah, I would say that God, that, that Mary was the, the God bearer. Yeah. So you can say... So you're he, comfortable referring to Mary as Mary, the mother of God. Yes. Okay. In as much as it is new, with yeah. a big, with a very <laughs> big that says, around over there. Uh, as long as, let the reader understand that by mother of God, we mean to say that Mary, uh, that there, uh, there was, there has never been a time when the son of God did not exist. Yes. But there has been a time in which the human nature and the incarnate Jesus Christ did not exist. That's right. But you know who else would say that? Who? Catholics. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that, right. like, we, I think Protestants hear that and we're like, oh, that's crossing a line, you know, because then we're going to call her Queen of Heaven next. And I would say that the, the, the straight up, just the Catholic teaching on this is exactly what you just said. It's interesting to me to kind of do a gut check on my own um, baggage around, like, things that have come out of the Catholic Church and, and say, oh, that can't be right because the Catholics... Right. said it and they worship Mary and it's like a lot of what they've said about Mary and her role doesn't go you know I guess people would make a slippery slope argument around it but I just think it's interesting to see oh that is actually something that a Protestant could say I affirm that um, under the proper understanding of what it means yeah I think the the doctrine of of Mary being the God bearer doesn't lead to a veneration of Mary but a veneration of the humility of God mm-hmm. right Right, that's like what that, should that's point. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not pointing to Mary. It's a reference to his, to yeah, his, his identification and his, his condescension. Yep. yep. We need to do a podcast one on Mary and theology. I think I know someone we could have know, on. Yeah, Caroline. That's what I'm yeah. thinking too. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear where she is in her research. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, so, does Jesus have a mom? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus has a mom. Mm-hmm. Is that significant? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we just talk about it? Uh, yeah, I guess we did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, uh, can I go all all uh, girly on you guys I'm, for a second? Yeah, I'm trying to. I was trying to create this. You space. were throwing. That I was to not me. gonna. You were not gonna no, step into this. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Caroline could talk more about this. Really, we really should have her on sure. because I do think that one of the things that Protestants have lost as we have fled any notion that Mary is more significant than she should be uh, is that. Um, 
the 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 role of women in redemptive history has kind of sometimes taken a, a back seat. Mm-hmm. Mary is the one through whom the prophecy is fulfilled that was given to Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, and so um, we're allowed to pay attention to that in 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 ways that are honoring just what was meant to be communicated by that. And um, and so looking at Mary's role and seeing her as um, fulfillment is is something that um, I think then sets us up in the way that it's it's the you know it's the first feature in in, in the Gospels um, of of Luke and of Matthew that that sets us up for uh, how the Gospels are going to talk about women in general within under the under the umbrella of the new creation the new covenant yeah. all of those things yeah that's what. That's what I was trying to get out here is that this, the fact that Jesus has a mom. He has a mom. um, Is it's tying together one of the largest aspects of the redemption history Mm -hmm. that is so under emphasized and underplayed, Mm -hmm. uh, which is that there's this promise that it's going to be the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. Who will crush the head of the serpent? Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman will be saved through childbearing. Yeah. And so here it is that this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, has been born of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Why Virgin? We didn't talk about Virgin. We didn't talk about Virgin. Um, well, that's a good question. What do you think? I've got like of all the things to insist on, that feels like an awkward one. Right. Well, I think you know, there's there there's often um, a push here that that the virginal conception was necessary for the lack of transference of sin nature. Right. Is that a valid? It. That's it, what I've always heard. Well, that's why it, I wanted to talk it about. Could it. be, but it. I don't think it is because of the the lack. Like that's what I've taught. So well, I basically no, no. need to either go back and apologize <laughs> to people or know that I've done a no, good okay, job. Okay. So here's um here nobody here, knows. <laughs> this is actually something. I'll just this, start saying that this now. Was when a it comes super up. popular question when we were when I was teaching this in the training program. Yeah, this is a big which one. is um, I want to be careful because I don't think that it has something to do with the lack of sin being pr- or sex being present in Mary's life. Oh no no no! I, I thought we were talking about the lack of original sin. Is well, that not what you were talking about? Well, but yes. But the question would be well. Did, was wasn't Mary born broken by sin? Her virginity isn't her um, her. Perfection. Okay, but this is what I've always heard: is that that would, the original sin is transferred down through the man, the dad. Whoa! Well, I know it's so sexist. <laughs> yeah, I'm just golly. telling you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it could be. I think if you, I've taught it. I'm a total hypocrite. Here, 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 here's my take on this, and this could honestly, this could be wrong. But that federal headship, which is this, uh, which is the idea. That's what of, that is, right? right federal which headship. Which is that, mm. that Adam is Adam was our mm-hmm. federal head as right. our representative, right. and that that because of Adam's sin, this is what we're seeing. And federal headship is really developed in the Pauline epistles, in particular, and Romans probably most specifically. But that Adam was our federal head; he was our representative before God. And when he sinned, the whole world broke, including us. That for the virginal conception, for there to not be a sin nature in Jesus, would to have. Uh, would it would be necessary for there to be a virginal conception where Jesus was not tied into the federal headship? Yes, of Adam. that's what I've always heard. 
Am I off on this? Uh, I, th- I think I would teach it that way. Okay, honest. but but I think that the the red herring in this conversation is the lack of sex. That's right. Because in the earth, because there are there were many who, through the course of church history, have said the region of virginal conception was absolutely necessary. Is that any sexual activity would have tainted Mary, right. or tainted the whole course of action? Right. Now we want to be clear: we're not suggesting that there was sexual activity in the conception of Jesus. We're simply saying that the la- that the reason that the virginal conception mm. is theologically made be necessary uh-huh. or as a part of the puzzle yeah. has nothing to do with the presence or lack of sexual activity. It has to do with, with the transmission of original sin. That's Through right. federal headship. Uh-huh. Yep. So that's what I would say. Yeah. And and we also need to okay. say like okay. the virgin birth is an absolute fundamental essential for Christian thought. Like yes. this is a You don't get to you don't get to give any ground on the virgin no. birth. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, not a young woman, not somebody who I mean we're talking about well, she could have been a young woman, but sometimes people That's will say... That's not what that means. Virgin right. does not mean young woman. Yes. Virgin All right. Do means... I have time to lob another grenade? Uh-oh. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what about other religions that teach virgin births? Like, isn't this just a rip off of what other religions have taught about their their messiahs? Well, probably I mean, the one that comes to mind a lot is Horace. Mm-hmm. Horace gets brought up a lot as, well, wasn't he also a virgin, uh, a virgin birth? Mm-hmm. You know, I really don't know. I haven't studied those stories enough to know. I know that they exist, but I don't know their distinct differences mm-hmm. to be able to be like, well, this is what, how I would contrast it. Mm-hmm. So, Would you take a similar line of argument to things like when, when people learn about the other accounts of flood narratives? Well, I've spent more time thinking about and reading other accounts of flood narratives. Well, that's what I'm wondering is, would you, like, would you um, compare oh, would you say- the way we deal with the Epic of Gilgamesh and the account of Noah's flood? Would you say the same relationship exists between other virgin birth accounts and um, the way that Christianity employs? Maybe, but again, I would have to know, like, the time stamps yeah. of the chronology, because one of the arguments that's employed is, well, really, they're riffing off of Christian source material. But some Or of the, the opposite. Or the opposite, is that Christians are riffing, riffing off yep. of their source material. I think particularly with the flood narratives is what's happening is that there's a worldwide flood that and now everyone's trying everybody's to commenting it. Right. on it. Okay, and that's the, kind of what I'm asking is, do you think that these other um, accounts of virgin births have to do with just this collective sort of... I don't know. Imprint on our consciousness. I've heard people say things well, like that. Like, yeah, this I, is what we need, so we have to find a way to... I don't know. A lot of the w- ways that people talk about virginal births uh-huh. in kind of the uh, in ancient Eurasian history had to do with purity. So, like, if I looked at the some of the other myths, I, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised at all to find out... So it is an issue ...that there was sex. an emphasis is on purity and asceticism. Okay. Yeah. But I'd have to look. Man, we could have just transitioned this into a full-blown purity culture combo. But <sighs> well, I'm unfortunately. Glad, well, I'm glad that we did. <laughs> time to go. <laughs> um, for more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to jump back into the, to Acts and Discover the Perfect Church. You guys want to find out about the Perfect Church in Acts? I do. Acts 335. We'll just kind of get the manual for Perfect Church and we'll be ready to go. You guys ready? We're ready. We're okay. ready. See you next time. Grace and peace. Peace.